We'd like to thank Arcat for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. Your boss asks you to put together the CAD details for your firm's next project. What's your next step? Is it using basic internet search only to find outdated or incompatible details? Grabbing the details from the last project and hoping they fit? There is an easier, faster, less stressful way to get the information you need. RCAT.com. RCAT has over 15,000 CAD details based on real manufacturers' products and a powerful search engine to find the right one you need. Best of all, it's free. You don't even have to register. Just go to RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com and start downloading the CAD details you need. And thanks to RCAT for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. Welcome to ArcaSpeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. Welcome to episode 140 of the ArcaSpeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxell. And I'm Cormac Phelan. Hey guys, so this weekend I went on a road trip, just put a about 900 miles on the car. And on your body. <laughs> we went out to Arizona, and which is, which is not too far, about five hours to Phoenix from here. And we got an Airbnb for the weekend and did, did some architectural touring. So I posted a, f- a few pictures up on Instagram, and uh, I guess I'll put a link to, in the show notes for that. But um, the the cool thing was it was just kind of we we actually went out there for another purpose it didn't work out so we ended up just having more time on our hands than we thought so we went and got some tickets for Taliesin West which I haven't been to it was what was kind of cool was this was kind of a a repeat of a piece of a road trip I did when I was in college I think it was third year of my architectural undergraduate, which I don't have a graduate degree, so I don't know why I said it like that, but I have a, you know, just a B-arch. And when I was third year Cal Poly, we went on this Southwestern road trip. And um, the first couple stops were in this area. We ended up going all the way out to Chaco Canyon. Oh, Chaco Canyon. Love that place. Which is uh, ancient Pueblo ruins. And I, it's super cool. My, my wife and I went back there. Uh, when we were dating, actually, just on a, on a cool road trip, um, but that that's where we ended up on that trip. But we went through Arcosanti, Cosanti, um, Taliesin West, and we went out through Santa Fe and Albuquerque, all the way out to Chaco Canyon and back, which was super cool uh, back then with all of my my classmates. And now um, I took my wife and I and two of our kids out over the weekend, and we just did kind of the the short version, the the quicker loop, the nine hundred mile loop instead of the, the 3000 mile loop or whatever it is. But um it was it was so awesome out there. It was just perfect weather and uh and so we were trading pictures back and forth Cormac and I were at least about the uh <laughs> the different things that we were doing over the weekend. So he was posting cool pictures of uh the car shows that he was going to and I was posting architectural shots. So I, I never felt like I could one up you though cuz you'd like, you know, post <laughs> I'm doing. I wasn't this. posting that many, so <laughs> no. But you, you were you were posting like I'm doing this, and you know this beautiful sprawling picture of uh, Talies and West, and I'm like, oh yeah. Well, here's a picture. <laughs> here's a Pantera. You know, here's a Pantera <laughs> and a um, and a Countach, and a, um, actually there was a Lamborghini Miura right next to it. So oh I man, mean, those are beautiful. They're gorgeous cars, but I don't know. I, I think I think you won. <laughs> well, both inspiring. Let's say that. You, you, yeah. 
Exactly. I mean, automobile design is is one of those things that I think is we should talk more about as architects because uh, there's there's so much going on there, but yet the the overall idea is is very simple and beautiful. So, oh yeah, uh, it's cool. And Neil, what were you doing or this weekend? Mowing his grass. <laughs> I should have mowed the lawn. I didn't. <laughs> oh, what did I do this weekend? Not a whole lot, actually. Nothing remarkable. Yeah, I I don't I don't know what to say. I guess I don't know where to start. I guess I'll just start with the first place that we went, which was um, which was Taliesin. So we we got up and and found breakfast. And and Phoenix is enormous. I mean, talk about yeah. sprawl. Uh, it's it's huge. We were in Scottsdale, so. Uh, we went to Old Town, Scottsdale for for breakfast, and and then we headed out to Taliesin. We had a ten o'clock tour, so we got there about nine thirty, and you know it sits on the 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 brow of a hill. I mean that was kind of Frank Lloyd Wright's thing, right? It wasn't like build on top of the hill. It was it was use the hill, blend into the hill. I mean that's the the, the purpose of organic architecture to him. You know it was it was blending in with your surroundings, using local materials, and and so it's just this gorgeously sited complex. They have got about forty thousand square feet. And I guess I'll say now that if if you ever get the chance to go, go. It's it's an amazing place, and you know you really can't go wrong unless you go in the dead of summer, probably, um, with the weather out there. If you're from the the northeast, you know that you can get away from that cold, wintry, which hopefully you guys are just getting out of now with uh with the time of year, right? But but it's been it's been kind of a brutal winter for the northeast, so. Yeah, there's a lot of snowbirds down in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just hit our uh, um, our high here, and we're just in. I'm just in the mid Atlantic um, of 68 degrees today. Was the highest it's been in a while. Welcome. Yeah, so on our on our April. trip, it, it it hit 101 in April on our trip. So that that was kind of like out at the border near the Colorado River um, between California and Arizona, but. It's crazy. It's April. It's one uh, over hundred degrees. <laughs> I got a photo of that uh, because it was just like, what the what the heck's going on? It's going to be a brutal summer. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, the weather was really nice out there in Arizona, so we we weren't complaining. They don't call it the desert for nothing. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. So uh, you know they they spent back back in the when, when Taliesin was was being built and when they were occupying it they were there half the year so they weren't they weren't there during the summer they were in Chicago at the other Taliesin right so uh they were they were smart enough to not stay there either but um it's just an amazing place there's about 40,000 square feet it's it's you know it's all for the most part single story there's definitely there's some two story a little bit um but but just this amazing view out over Scottsdale and and it's just it's a it's perfectly sited. They've got their own well water, um, so that they 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 basically the tour guide was selling Frank Lloyd Wright as a as a genius in so many ways. Uh, he was able to find water when when nobody else knew there was water there. But uh, which may or may not be true, I don't know. But it was uh, it was a neat story, and our our docent knew so much. Um, you can tell that he was definitely a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, and he had definitely, you know, shall we say, drank the Kool Aid. Um, <laughs> It was it was all of the the great things and none of the bad things uh, about Frank Lloyd Wright, and and it was just neat because my wife had never been there, the kids obviously had never been there, and the, it was the same tour. We just did, basically did the basic tour, but it's about ninety minutes, and it it was you get to see so much of Talias and West, and you don't get to go in the drafting studio with the basic tour, and they actually. 
Uh, I don't think that they, I know they don't allow photography ever in the drafting studio and there might be a tour or two that go in there, but it's, it's a, it costs more and you have to go on the, like the three hour tour to do that. Um, so, and they're, and they're in session right now too. So you, you know, it's, it's probably private to some extent. I'm sure that there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in there that they just don't want to get out on social media or whatever, just because it's, it's student work and there's, there's students working in there. So. Um, it would have been cool. I have never been in the drafting studio, but this was the same tour that I did when I was in college <clears throat> and you get to go in the office and you get to go in their living room and, and this, this cool space called the Kiva, which is kind of like a dark meeting room mm-hmm. and, um, the cabaret and the theater. So there's so many, so many spaces you could visit there, but, um, I just have to say like overall it, it was so inspiring and, you know, I don't want to give like a play by play of every single space, but the way that everything is thought about, uh, and, and, you know, it's pretty well preserved at this point. And they're definitely going back and replacing some of the wood with steel at this point now so that it just lasts for future generations. There's definitely some deterioration going on. I mean, it is, you know, a very harsh environment, both in the summer and in the winter, it gets pretty cold out there. Um, and the redwood that they originally used has, has, for the most part, started to go really bad. And, you know, they've been replacing it over the years. At some point, they switched to, to cedar instead of redwood. But now they're going to full-on steel. And uh, yeah. But overall, it's just, I mean, it, de- it doesn't compromise the space. It doesn't compromise the, the aesthetics it doesn't compromise you know everybody i think everybody understands and they know that this is for the the greater good that for it to make it last um and and i should say there's even a night tour where you get to see kind of all of the design and and so when i say everything was considered i mean it was the every single thing is designed there it's really amazing the doors the hinges the um just everything and the way that the light is diffused into the spaces with canvas um, and the way that, you know, Frank is known for leaky buildings, right? Um, and, and I think there, especially, you know, in the springtime with the, with the afternoon monsoons that happen, it's kind of expected, I'm sure, at some level. But the way that he worked the rain gutters into these roofs um, and the way that he just did not design boxes, he did not encompass space in, you know, they might be rectangular in plan, but they are not ever Mm. rectangular in section uh, for the most part, for the most part. Um, And it, it, it's, so I I think it's, it's a lot different than, than a lot of his other projects. You know, it's a lot different than falling water from what I've seen. I haven't been there myself, but um, just the spaces are really not cubic in nature. And I think that there's something so interesting about that and the way that he considered views when you're sitting versus standing um, and the way that the rooms compress and um, I don't know what the right terms are, compress and explode, you know, they, they're, they're very tight and then they open very Frank Lloyd Wright style. Very, yeah. So evident in so many spaces there and so much level change, whether it's minor or not, just to differentiate spaces and, and just so, so inspiring. And, and I think what it really inspired me to do was just build. I, I want to build with my own hands and I also saw how he did it with the slave labor <laughs> that, <laughs> that we'll call students, you know, in, uh, you know, apprenticeships. Um, it, it's a very different world back then. Um, 
they paid to go to school there and worked their asses off, you know? So it was, it was definitely like we, we nowadays talk about unpaid internships and we talk about um, equity and we talk about all these things. And the issues back then were, I mean, these, these students were paying, I think it was like $400 um, for, for a term and they got to live in a tent in the desert and they got to help build Taliesin West. And that was learn the learn by doing attitude. But I mean, it really was, I mean, Frank would walk around in his, his wool suit and his hat and his, his cape a lot of times and point at things with his cane and tell students what to build and what to make. And that doesn't say he would send students off to get a two person or a four person boulder, uh, you know, whatever size he needed to accomplish the thing that he did. And, and they would go off and get it and bring it back. And because it was all local materials, they would mix their own concrete and pour it. And I mean, it's, it's a beautiful outcome. I can't imagine actually doing it though, especially in the, in the environment that they were in. So, um, it was a, it was kind of a, just a really inspiring, but also me realizing, man, I really want to build and then realizing what it actually takes to do all that building and the the labor that it takes to do it. I mean, <laughs> everybody knows construction's not easy, but it sounded like he didn't have to pay a dime, you know, that he, that right. they paid, they pretty much paid for the construction of it. Maybe, well, that's the, maybe that's the gig you got to do is you've got to, you know, convince people that, Hey, um, you should pay me for my wisdom. And yeah, he was the master, right? The master builder. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what was interesting was he, that the, the way that the timeline works out was that he got paid from doing falling water and turned that money around and bought the land to do Taliesin West hmm. at $3 and 50 cents an acre. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. And how many right. acres is the, it's huge. It's like 850 acres, 620. Okay. So it's huge. I mean, yeah, they, they own a lot of land and it has its own water. Obviously they're pulling power from the grid, but, um, it's a, it's a, it is a masterpiece. I mean, it really is. And what's interesting is to kind of hear the larger story of Frank Lloyd Wright and how, um, you know, talking about the Imperial Hotel and the Guggenheim and, and 532 built works and over 1,100 designed over his 70-year career. He bought Taliesin and Westland when he was 70. I mean, he wow. – and then he built it over yeah. how, I don't know how many years. So it's pretty it's a pretty amazing story. And then just to hear about how in 1991 when they did – I mean, one of the one of the big magazines or somebody did the – most influential buildings in architecture ever are the right. 100 most. And he had 12 of them on the list after everybody had, had tallied the votes. That's, that's a pretty enormous that's, impact on the profession. That's pretty damn good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so let me ask this. Um, and I don't know if you, um, got a lot out of it, out of your tour or not, but, um, the students there, I mean, are they now, you know, essentially, like Frank Lloyd Wright preservationists? I mean, are they really learning, you know, I mean, obviously they're not learning from him. They're just learning from, you know, the second and third or possibly even fourth or at least third generation uh, removed from him. And I'm not sure how that's working, but yeah, go ahead. I'm just, I'm curious. I mean, if, if it's, I know a little like, are, are they, are they, you know, is it, what is the school? What does the school teach them? I mean, is it a, 
um, is it purely preservation of Frank Lloyd Wright works and, you know, teaching who and what he was and all that other stuff, you know, like you said, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid or are they really kind of like teaching, you know, the next iteration of, you know, what would be the, the new, you know, a presumptive new philosophy of, you know, Wrightian architecture in the modern age. I don't know if it sounds too academic there, but, um, I mean, well, I'm just I'm yeah, curious. I, I can tell you what I know and people can write us and tell me what I, what I say that's wrong right now. Um, but basically, there are 24 students, I want to say. That might be a high number. Um, and it's a master's degree. It's I believe it's two years. Uh, it's $43,000 a year, I believe. He's still making money off of students. And it is a full-on accredited master's degree program in architecture. So okay. it's not preservation i don't i'm there might be some of that in there i have no idea um i looked in the studio i saw models of towers i saw models of all kinds of stuff um it's definitely not just talking about frank lloyd wright i believe that there is an office running out of that same or nearby studio as well which is dedicated to that type of work i believe um so they also have the option to live in the dwellings that the students either have built or do build out in the landscape on the acreage near the, the main campus. And all of the students who are there currently have elected to do so. So they live out in these little buildings that, that have been built or are, or maybe they build them themselves. I don't know. I, I, there's definitely some that have been there a really, really long time. Um, there's no power, there's no water out there. Um, and they spend half of their time at Taliesin West, from what I could gather, and half of their time in Chicago. So oh, they move every six months, basically, between the two schools. Well, that's interesting. So it's it's kind of, it almost sounds like it's the rural studio before the rural studio existed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not, they're not actively out doing the construction projects like rural studio is. It, from what I can gather, but they are, they do have a, a studio environment and they're doing, I would say it's a lot more like what I went to school in that kind of a studio where, um, it's, it's crits and models and design and all that stuff. Now I'm not sure about any other classes. I'm not sure about what the full curriculum is, um, because they are, they're kind of, you know, they're on their own site and I have no idea how that works into, um, any other kind of curriculum. So what it's well, I mean, if I mean, if it's a a master's program, I'm sure it's just purely focused for the most part, just core studio. Yeah. yeah, could be. But as far as like structures and um, environmental control, I mean, maybe they do all that there in the studio. I mean, it's not that many students. They, it's not like they need different classrooms for that kind of stuff. So, right, it, it could all right. just be happening right there. So you say that there's like no power, or I mean, they like you know, not out buy, at their own little. Yeah, not at their not at the little dwellings that are kind of scattered throughout the site. Uh, mm -hmm. There's plenty of power in the main buildings, <laughs> so there was air conditioners cranking away, for sure. Um, but but yeah, I mean it, it's a it seems like a really neat style of education, and it I know that um, it wasn't too long ago that Aaron Betsky became the dean out there, so he was, hmm. um, so 
yeah, anyway, I, I heard him speak on uh, the Archonnect Sessions podcast about that. Um, but there was, you know, there was a lot of question over whether it was going to remain accredited. Uh, it sounds like it has. Um, and it sounds like it's it's doing pretty well. Anyway. Kind of cool. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'd like to learn more. So if there's any listeners out there that know anything about it, um, I'd, I'd like to learn more. Yeah, for sure. Um, it just made me want to visit more. I mean, my wife was same, you know, it's just like, Oh, we got to get out. We got to do more of this. We got to do more of this with the kids and, and we got to oh, go see yeah. more stuff. And, and I feel like we do a pretty good job of that, but we can always go see more. We, we live in, the, in near LA. I mean, we, there's so much to see here. We should, we should do it. Anyway. Yeah, and I, 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 I took, um, two, two or three summers ago. Um, we decided to kind of like go on a, um, you know, after we do our kind of annual camping trip, we drove through northern Michigan and down through Wisconsin and, you know, saw a couple of buildings within Wisconsin and then drove to Chicago and, you know, we kind of toured a couple of different places, uh, Oak Park, um, you know, walked around, you know, as, as many houses as uh, I could get out of them before they started complaining about being hungry and, <laughs> and I'm walking them to death, but... um <laughs> But, you know, I, we've, we've, I mean, I would say that, you know, my kids at their ages of 17, 15 and 10 have probably seen far more Frank Lloyd Wright buildings or even, you know, significant architectural buildings than I had, um, through the first few, you know, first few years of my career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Same. You sure they're happy about that? (laughs) <laughs> they, you know what? I mean, here's the thing. And, and everybody always asks me, you know, how do you, how do you get away with like visiting architecture with your kids? And, you know, if you make it fun for them, uh, you, you, obviously you're going to have fun, but they're going to have fun too. And, and I've never, I mean, at least they have, have never said anything to me, you yeah. know, <laughs> not out loud. Saying, not out loud, but I mean, most of the time they seem to be having fun. I mean, there are times where, um, you know, when we're going to more historical places like say Mount Vernon or something like that, where, you know, they're like history again, but you know, when it, when it's coming to old like, stuff, yeah, <laughs> but when it's like coming to like going to architecture, you know, like you know, architecturally significant buildings and stuff, um, they, we seem to like have fun with it, make a game out of it, you know. Um, maybe, you know, my oldest will like play the game that I'm always playing, which is let's find all the defects. <laughs> <laughs> nice. you know, but, uh, um, you know, let's project manage this and see if they did a good job. No, <laughs> no, yes, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, we, we seem to be able to, to get around that. And, and I mean, how did your kids do it? They... Who are you asking? You. Me? When My you kids were, do really, did really well with this one. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones that we've been to. I don't, I can't, I can't think of any ex- complaints. So, I mean, I'll tell you that like probably of, of any and all of our trips and stuff. I mean, they still kind of rave about it and ask me if, uh, when we're going back, but they, you know, loved falling water and they love the grounds. They love to go into the house itself. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've been there twice and, you know, if, 
if they have their way, then, you know, I'll be there a third time. Um, you know, cause it, it's, it's just cool. And it, you know, there are some things for them to do. And, and now that they've kind of changed up the kind of, they have a companion house that I visited the first time at Kentucky Knob was, you know, one of the, um, houses that I visited in this other time they had one. Um, but you know, my wife looked at it, it as like, we've got all five kids here. It costs an, an additional like $25 per person just to go to this extra house. Right. Right. You know, she's just, <laughs> it is she's expensive doing the, with the large yeah. family. Yeah. She, you know, she's just like, yeah, I don't think we're going to do that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, we, we hit a bunch of other locations after this and, and again, I don't think the kids really complained about it. So we're, we're looking forward now to like getting out to Hollywood and going and seeing the Barnstall house and, the Hollyhock House, as most people know it, and then the uh, the Ennis yeah. Brown House is up there too in the hills. So, you know, to go see some different styles of Frank Lloyd Wright that, as as he kind of progressed through his career, to see some textile block and yeah, uh, see those are those are the ones that I you know haven't seen yet. Um, and surprisingly enough, even though my sister lives in Phoenix, I've never gone to Taliesin West. Oh man, um, you got to. So yeah, that, that those are those are bucket bucket list ones i mean i've got a lot i mean there's there's one actually there's a in fact actually it's a family um it's i guess his great grandson or grandson who Mm -hmm. lives in bethesda um not but a few like less than you know half a mile away from me so there's a you know there's a house you don't see it from the street it looks like two intersecting footballs you know from the aerial view. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I think he did that actually later in his career. And, um, his son Lloyd, Wright, I guess, uh, actually finished the house mm. after, you know, after his, uh, um, father's death. So, um, yeah, I mean, you make a game out of it and, and they love it. And it sounds like you yeah. did, you know, a lot of other things like, you know, and I'm, I'll be the spoiler here, but like you went to the OK Corral. We actually didn't even get down to the south. We ended up going north now because, yeah, because it didn't work out for our other plans. So we, from Talies, yeah, part of the the key to making this all work is sprinkling your field trips with with food outings. So yeah, go go get lunch, then go do another tour, then go go find a snack. And (laughs) so we we headed over, we, we went by, so... I don't know if you guys are familiar with Paolo Soleri. Yeah. He was yeah. born in Italy, Turin, Italy in 1919, and uh, he apprenticed under Frank Lloyd Wright after he had come over to the U.S. And he ended up getting married and basically settling down in the Scottsdale area. So there's a lot of neat stuff going on out, out that that way. Um, there's also a lot of neat mid-century modern stuff going on out there. So we, we stopped at some really cool churches and some different projects that we just saw driving along the road. I had kind of asked on Twitter before we went and, and people had a lot of great ideas. So, um, that was really cool, but we, we just made a bunch of stops, but we went over to his home, Paulo Soleri's home, which is called Cosanti. And it's about five acres in Scottsdale and it's surrounded by McMansions. Um, but you can tell he's been there a lot longer and it basically was his experimental proving grounds for a lot of his ideas. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, he 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 did a lot of silt cast 
thin shell concrete on site. Um, it's very organic and basically used a business where they would cast bronze and ceramic bells and use that to pay for his experimental architecture. Hmm. Um, and eventually he got to the point where he was able to, he, he had won some huge grants and he, he had done some larger projects. He, he actually went back to Italy for a time with his wife and did a, a ceramics factory that was, it's pretty beautiful. Um, ended up coming back to the U.S. and basically it seems like he, he came up, he got this side business rolling and again, kind of in the Frank Lloyd Wright style of <laughs> slave labor of students got a bunch of amazing stuff built and I, and and I will say what's different about Paulo Paulo is that he was very involved in the hands-on construction himself. I mean there's so many photos from what from what I can tell was he was a maker and he was out there with the and and it seems more like a lifestyle and a movement rather than an apprenticeship kind of a thing that that Frank Lloyd Wright had going on. So I don't I don't mean to make it sound like it was exactly the same but in the same vein as as students coming out and paying Frank to apprentice for him, that that's pretty much what happened with Paolo too out at his other development, which is about an hour north of Phoenix, and it's called Arcosanti. And that is a, a huge amount of land that he purchased and started developing a, a, a self-sustaining city on. And, and people could come and pay to live there and work there uh, for, for a pretty nominal fee amount and basically apprentice and learn what's called arcology, which is a you know combination of architecture and ecology. And it's all about self-sustaining architecture and, and density rather than sprawl. So it's really in response to what was happening in Phoenix at the time in many cities around the world where they're very horizontal, um, dependent on the car. And he was very much about densifying to an extreme amount, but also because of that, people sharing a lot of uh, things and sharing living quarters as far you know some parts of living uh, like like kitchens and community spaces and things like that and then having n- no cars at all so moving walkways um, escalator systems stuff like that um, but also you know close proximity to basically farming and and everything that you would need to sustain your your small community within a, a much larger and, and he had designed it all the way up to support about 5,000 people he designed several versions over the years and even decades, um, and he had gotten to the point where there was one that was about 5,000 people was kind of the number he was shooting for to be sustaining on. So his his home became the experimental kind of construction grounds for different ideas of how to do that using local materials without heavy machinery, um, with you know trying to make it as, as simply constructible as possible. So it's a lot of cast in place concrete it's a lot of using the the desert silt that's right there to do so and then building these pretty elaborate and beautiful structures um that that really do last a long time so um the ideas that that are built into this are are definitely sound i mean i went to arcosanti 22 years ago and i went to his home 22 years ago i i saw him jump into the pool in his leopard print speedo i mean it and and they look the same today. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to have a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> the, it was an experience. It was cool. Uh, so so, but but it's the same as it as it was. I mean, it's 
it's maybe a little bit worse for wear, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just you, the same. Um, well, you, you know, it's interesting, and, and I'm looking at a photo right now. Um, you know, kind of like the the main splash page of Arcasani on um, Wikipedia, and you know, looking at it and looking at how you know it's sprawling and developed, but it's kind of like carved in and out of the the um, hills or the. It's like on an edge of a canyon. You know? Yeah. I mean, you had talked about going to Chaco Canyon, and I see a lot of yeah. um, indigenous inspiration. Kind of yeah. Like exactly. You know, totally. Where, where it really kind of is something that's almost inherent to like Arizona, New Mexico, with all these cliff dwellings and stuff. I mean, if you think about it, Chaco Canyon was a, a really large settlement. Huge. For, you know, right. Yeah, and, Pueblos are enormous. Oh yeah, and, multi-story. And, yeah, and and I don't know. Have you ever been to Canyon de Chez? No. Um, very similar. Uh, you know, it's got clay. Um, it's got um, you know, cave dwellings and and things like that, and you know, carved out into the the cliff sides and things like that. And and these these remind me as you know, it's kind of a maybe not modern day, but you know, well, let's just call it modern day um, version of those things with you know, self sustaining built with natural resources. I mean, it, it really is kind of, you know, the modern, you know, yeah, the, the modern Pueblo living. He took a ton of inspiration from that. I think that was something that was so impressive about what he was able to pull off was just the connection, the strong connection to the past that the indigenous people, like building off of what they had come up with and integrating those ideas into modern ideas. And and I, I kind of walked away from it. You know, we, we did a tour there. And so you get a tour from somebody who lives there. There's about 66 people living at Arcosanti right now. And it, it'll support up to about 100 at the current size. So just to, you know, you said it was kind of sprawling across the edge of this thing. And just to give you an idea of scale, this is nowhere near the Grand Vision. Not even no, close. Right. This is a speck on the map of a, of a crazy model that he had, he had designed um, of the the entire vision and basically most of what they have today was built in an eight year time span when there was tons of development going on out there. There were tons of people interested in it and they were all out there helping make it happen. And his wife died at one point. This is a story that one that the, the docent who gave us the tour who, who lives out there currently was telling us was his wife died way before he, he, got sick and died. He he just died about five years ago. Um, but that's basically when all the development stopped. And there has been a few construction projects since then, but for the most, when he was alive, um, but for the most part, it really slowed down after that initial boom. And it was really like, you know, she was a huge part of that. I mean, much like Charles and Ray Eames were a partnership and the, basically the stories that I heard about Frank Lloyd Wright and Olga Vanna, I mean, it was very much this this relationship between this husband and wife that really made it happen. I mean, she injected so much into what Arcosanti was. And when she was gone, I think he just kind of lost the the drive to build this city. I'm, I'm sure a lot of it was for her. And then when, when he passed away, it's, it's now to me, and I, I don't live there and I, this might sound, I, I don't know, like I'm, I'm reading into it too much, but it seems like that vision while everybody who goes there definitely 
supports the vision and loves the vision and wants to be a part of it, I don't see how it's possible without him. And so I think that's what's kind of the saddest thing about it. I, I mean, I, I said on my Instagram post where I just posted kind of a picture of the entry, you know, it's overall, it's just, it's kind of a sad place. And so some people ask why, why the sadness? And, and to me, it's, it's more sad just that, that it, it doesn't have what it once had. It doesn't have that lifeblood coursing through it every day. And the vision, I don't think will ever be realized. I mean, the local city has its hooks now in with, inspecting every little thing that goes on out there as as they do everywhere we all have to deal with this as architects um but you know they're talking about having to do fire suppression in all the buildings i mean that alone is is an enormous expense Mm. they have to pave the road to get there so that the fire department doesn't have to drive down the dirt road to get there um so there's all of these kind of expenses up front before they can do another major building project and in just that alone, I mean, something that, that our docent said was, you know, Paolo was a proud Italian. He never took a dime from anybody. And so when that culture has been ingrained into Arcosanti and Cosanti for so long, it's really hard to step out of that and take on outside investment, which is really what it would take a huge influx of capital to make any of this happen. It's not going to happen off the sale of bells. I mean, maybe yeah. our podcast can really help sell some bells here. But I don't think it's going to make a dent in the overall idea of what Arcosanti's vision, you know, the vision of of that community really was or to some extent still is. But I just that to me is kind of the saddest thing is that that the vision is never going to be fully realized. And I think that's just kind of like the practicality of the whole thing. So that to me kind of it sucks. And, And what's interesting is, you know, in 22 years, I can't really point out anything that's changed there. I'm sure some small things have, but overall it's kind of the same place. And now they just kind of host festivals and retreats and all these different things. It basically has become a venue for, for keeping itself alive throughout the years, but I don't see it ever getting the capital that it really takes to do some major development out there and become self-sustaining. They, they run off the city grid um, for electricity. They would have to double the size of their evaporation um, area out there for the, for the waste there's so many things that need to happen. I mean, it's 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 a huge investment. So so that that kind of sucks. But I mean, it's an impressive thing. I mean, I can't imagine having a vision that big and really going for it for as long as they did. And and I, you know, some of them still are. So I, I think that is that's pretty amazing. Not not to be the downer, but it looks like it might be destined to be um, another Arizona ruin. You know, it's going to be an amazing ghost town one day. I hope it doesn't happen anytime soon, but yeah, it's, it's, it is a harsh environment. I mean, don't forget that part as well. Right. Like they can only work on it so much out of the year anyway. Right. So, right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it gets 120 out there, so you don't want to be there when that happens, but there are families who live there year round. There's families who've lived there for 25 years, uh, raised kids there. I mean, that's all they've ever known. It is their home. So it's, it, on some levels, it definitely is successful. So. so, Evan, I have a question for you. Yeah. You've seen a couple of amazing places, several amazing places, and you've spent part most of the episode talking about the things that you've seen and what some of the very interesting things are about the things that you've seen. How do you then process that and then bring it back to what you're doing today. 
in your, you know, in your work? I think the biggest part of it for me, you know, I, I'm fairly busy the whole time kind of listening to the stories and photographing it so that I can bring these ideas back. And I, I make an effort to present them to the group that I work with. And to me, like that act of trying to pass those ideas along and those images along really helps me process it, but it also helps other people get hopefully excited about it as well and excited about something that we're not doing. I mean, it's just something that we're talking about. We're talking about the ideas, the forms, um, what it took to do it, the dedication, um, all those interesting kind of side stories to the main idea. And, but, but for me personally, I come away from those places super energized. And so I think that part of it, part of the reason I go is to get that back. And I feel like, especially after visiting these two projects or these three projects, um, Kosanti, Arcosanti, and Taliesin West, the whole idea of organic architecture from that kind of a standpoint, you know, not swoopy organic architecture, but architecture of context and materiality and sustainability. Um, I think that those are the things that I really needed right now. And, and it makes me feel like, I mean, this is something you guys can probably relate to. Like we sequence boxes from entry to the other end where the fire exit is. And they're Mm -hmm. very efficient. And they're all of the same volume, width, length, and height, right? They are and, – and to me, like, the, what was so interesting about these spaces that I visited, were they were interesting in so many ways that we learned about when we were in school. Sectionally, playfulness, um, design down to every little element, you know, the doorknob, everything down to the doorknob is, is designed. And I feel like a lot of our architecture does not possess that kind of thoughtfulness. And so to me, whether it's in, what can I do to bring that back to what I do on a daily basis? What can I do to plan buildings out like that? What can I do to have people have experiences like I just had? Because buildings are meant to look at, but architecture is meant to be experienced. Right. And so this is, this is what I got to do that. And I want to bring that to other people. And I, that to me really energizes me in the projects that I want to, I want to bring that to my projects. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I I feel like there are some actual ways to do that. And for me, it's through sharing. Um, but, but I also want to do it through doing myself, actually making that stuff. And, and like I said, like, I want to just do that at my house. I, I'm so disappointed in the <laughs> the spaces that I live in. Oh, what can I do here that would start to inf- make me enjoy this place more like I enjoyed those places? Well, and, and it's the experience behind all of that, you know, bringing it back, sharing it not only as a story to your colleagues that, you know, would appreciate it, but, you know, you're also sharing it with your children and things like that, as we were talking earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, and these are influences of, you know, them understanding, as well as your, your, your colleagues, understanding, you know, kind of like the value of space and the value of place. And, and so, you know, 
being able to like, you know, document and kind of immerse yourself is, is, you know, as much as you can in, you know, the experience of being there and then passing it on to someone else. I mean, the value of the story is, is equally as, you know, kind of profound as, you know, just like is being there because you're trying like, like I've been kind of captivated by listening to the story of your experience there kind of flipping through um, images of, of Arcasanti. And while I'm listening to you talk about it and, and, you know, thankfully I've got the power of the internet, so I'm not having to like, just visualize this, but, you know, being out in some of the other places that you visited and kind of understanding that and then seeing this and just kind of, you start to understand like you're, you're bringing a good passion to the way that you're telling the, you're about your experience and your story that I'm like, I, 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 you know, I need to go see it now, or I need to go experience places like this. Um, so that, you know, you can kind of enrich, you know, go back to what Neil was saying is, you know, how do you enrich your own, you know, design sensibilities or your own like architecture from that. And, and I think it, it really is, you know, sharing the joy, you know, like the seed starts with sharing the joy of like your experience with it, with other people. And then those other people want to go and, you know, have, you know, shared experiences or, or like experiences. And then you can, you know, it just kind of like goes from there. And that, and that's all you really can do. Right. You know, yeah. it's, <laughs> I, I think that I can't stress enough how important it is to actually experience the architecture yourself and, yeah. and bring people along, drag them along. Um, but that adds so much enrichment to, how you think about things and how you express them later on that you cannot get through a two dimensional surface, whether it's a screen or a magazine or whatever. So uh, it's, it doesn't matter how many times you flip through arc daily. You're not going to get that same feeling or experience or understand the light or the view or so many things that we miss out on that you, you get when you go visit it in a physical way well i was you know today um we've had our ace mentoring um and i was sitting around we're kind of in the throes of wrapping up kind of the design project that they've got to work on in getting them to the point where they've got you know graphics ready for you know assembling the presentation and giving their um end of year presentation for potential scholarships um and you know, we were talking about, I, I, um, was, were, was helping the landscape group, um, you know, cause we've kind of broken it up into landscape and civil engineering, architecture, structural engineering, and then mechanical, um, and electrical engineering. And then we even have a component for, you know, contracting. And so, you know, we have mentors come in and, and kind of talk to each of the kids who have interest in those specialities. And, and one of the great things is, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and, and I'm working, um, with the landscape group, um, more because the, um, you know, the landscape, um, guy that was there last week, he wasn't there this week. And so we were trying to advance and advance the design a little bit more. And so be, not knowing anything about the, the project that they've been working, or at least the aspect of the project they've been working on. I'm trying to like get them to talk about it 
Um, you know, and they were having a really hard time kind of like, you know, obviously they're, you know, high school kids and they're having a hard time kind of verbalizing what the concept and the idea was behind what they were doing. I mean, they've got a sketch out there and, and I'm trying to like, you know, distill it from them. So one of the things that I did to kind of help them with that is talk about like local areas that are similar to, you know, the areas, you know, the things that they're taught, you know, they're trying to do in the project that I think that they might've visited, you know? And so I'm trying to like connect what they're doing with an experience of a place they've already been and, and see how that kind of works. And it, and it really helped because it really kind of said, Oh yeah, yeah. And, you know, a couple of kids have visited Europe and, you know, they were talking about, Oh, and, you know, this, or they've been to New York city and, and, you know, so we were like going back and forth cause it's a very, it's this urban, you know, intervention into kind of a more of a urban suburban kind of development in one of the suburbs outside of Baltimore. And, you know, the, the, the area has got a little bit more of an urban flavor to it, but they're trying to layer, you know, like plazas and things like that over the top of it. And it, it's, it's really kind of an interesting um, idea that, you know, we're, we're working with, but to try to get them to understand what, you know, how to verbalize it or vocalize what their ideas were, I had to like really kind of pull from them their own experiences in other places to get them to, you know, like start thinking about, oh yeah. And that's, you know, I wanted to do this because I might've seen it here or there. And, and I think what you what you know, the, the beauty of you visiting these places and sharing it with us. And, you know, once we hit, you know, um, send on this, uh, recording and everybody else gets to hear, hopefully they kind of get that kind of almost same energy of like, you know, oh, I, you know, thinking about and sharing the, the experiences of, uh, you know, of, of places like this. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I've talked too much. <laughs> did uh well didn't you say you went to um uh chaco canyon we didn't this trip but we have i've been there twice now yeah okay. and it's it it's one of those spaces that it's unbelievable when you're there it's yeah. it has much more powerful effect than on me than even places like the grand canyon um because it's Oh man, like you can just wander those spaces, it, those little spaces with keyhole doorways and yeah. light shafts and uh, you can go up on the cliff above and look down on it and the way that they used the the sun and uh it there's so much going on there. It's it's amazing and it was such a, you know, amazing thing for how many years ago? 2500, 3000, I don't know. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been forever you know it's interesting because when i was there um it, it was you know a weird time in my life uh it just dropped out of of architecture school you know after third year and you know ran out of money it was kind of wandering around and and i was, it, was sharing this story with my son it was interesting as um you know when we were driving around this weekend going to car shows and stuff like that we had started with going to a little car show in, in DC and um, kind of turned out to sort of be a bus because it was only five cars, but they were historically significant cars. I mean, it was the, is as weird as it sounds. And, and, and they were actually uh, um, kind of enamored with it um, is the very first um, Dodge Caravan. 
Um, <laughs> it was it was like they they called it the ma- magic wagon number one. How funny! And um, you know, but it was the very first one to roll off the the line, and it was in still in perfect condition for you know for his age. And you know, then they had you know like the fifteenth millionth um, Ford that was built, which was surprise was amazing because it was a Model T. Or sorry, Whoa. a model a model A. Wow. Fifteen million in that early years of the car was Dang. just you know, you know, exceptional. And then, you know, they had um the uh basically what was the predecessor to the Jeeps um was, you know, this 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 old kind of like open um you know, open carriage type design and it was it was pretty amazing and and to look at some of the um the innovate the technological innovations that they had on this car, you know, like it was, you know, one of the early um introductions of the true leaf spring and things like that. And it was just it, it was pretty amazing. And then sitting right next to that was um the Ferris Bueller Ferrari. And it was, you know, the the um one that they moved used in the movie and then there was one more movie car, which was, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, you know, um, uh, but they just recently rediscovered the, um, the Ford Mustang from the movie bullet. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and it is in, it's in rough shape. Um, but they're preserving it to basically where it it is now. Right. And so it's, so it was really interesting that it, they had, you know, both the car itself on display, but then they also had the um, uh, kind of like the, the history of how the car was used in the movie. Then, you know, it was then it was sold to a family and then they owned it for a while and then it just kind of disappeared for, you know, a few decades and then um, was recently rediscovered, you know, in a, as a barn find. And uh, they're like, wait that kind of looks like the car from the movie. And mm. sure enough, it was the car from the movie. And it was a, you know, so there's the, the Hicks historic significance of, you know, being a Steve McQueen yeah. car. Um, but as we were, you know, sitting there talking about it and then, you know, we were trying to see if we could find a couple of other local um, uh, car shows, you know, just in, and we found, you know, the one with the, the Pantera and all those other ones, we were talking about my road trip that took me across country. Um, when I dropped out of school, you know, I did my old, um, crappy 1980, uh, triumph TR seven that had three cylinders, you know, and, and, you know, was not roadworthy at all to make this drive. And, you know, I was talking to them about like, you know, all of my, um, experiences and trials and tribulations as I was like driving out to visit my sister in Arizona. And, um, the, the thing about, you know, I, I started to tell them about like the side journeys that I was taking, like Chaco Canyon and Canyon to and things like that. And, you know, how, you know, the, the most amazing thing that I saw, you know, in Canyon to let's just say I was somewhat of a Bedouin at this time. And I was, uh, I was a, a self-imposed homeless. Yeah. Um, yeah. is an easy way to explain it in where I, you know, basically was just, it was a, a, an interesting time in my life. Like I said, as I, you know, quit school. And so I, I was just wandering and, and I wandered for quite a long time, actually like uh, several months. And, um, and I like lived, 
illegally in Canyon de Chez and Chaco Canyon and a few other places that I could basically sneak into and avoid being detected by the, um, by the park rangers yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and use their facilities and all that other stuff. But, you know, the thing that I liked the most about it in, in only now, um, with you talking about Arcasanti are, am I hearkening back to like, you know, what real architectural significance these places had, you know, for me in a time when I really, you know, I was trying to almost avoid architecture because, you know, I was, I, I almost felt at that point in time that I was done with school and, you know, what, what's the next chapter, you know, what else am I going to do? And, um, you know, and then to kind of like pull it back and, you know, looking at these images that I'm looking at right now of, of Arcasanti and listening to your stories and, and then likening them to, you know, these, these Native American things. I mean, it's kind of an interesting, you know, I mean, you're, it, it's it's funny as it as much as you didn't know that you were on a journey to like help me rediscover some things. <laughs> that's that's what I'm saying. The power of that story is all about. That's man. cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Definitely was feeling it after 22 years too. So it was uh, neat. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at it and they, they're they're kind of old and haggard buildings, and you know they're. Um, I mean, it looks like they're, you know, just have, have seen better days, but, but you could, but you can see the, like the inspiration and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the, um, photographs of, um, what is it there? There is the, bear with me here when I, the, the, the Arcasanti apes, asp. Oh, the apps. Apps. Yeah. yeah. It's like a quarter sphere. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what's interesting about that is you can see a very Italian kind of response, but you can also see a very like New World Native American kind of yeah. feel to it. Right. Um. So you know he's he's really brought like old world thought to the New World, but even kind of reached back to ancient New World. Right. You know? Yep. Yes, it was awesome. So I think our listeners should chime in and tell us if they've been to these spots or where where are they where most do they find excited inspiration about? Yeah, where, where are they finding their, their inspirations from? That'd be cool. So write us, tweet us, tell us on Facebook, all the spots. Hit us up in the comments on this episode. And if you've been out to either um, Taliesin West or I know a, f a few friends of ours um, that listen to the show who uh, um, frequent, uh, you know, main campus Taliesin, um, I, you know, do you share similar feelings and experiences? I can't see. I, I couldn't see how you can't. Yeah. I mean, these are just, you know, some amazing places. And what is everybody else's amazing place? So many choices. Well, we talked this one to death. I believe we did. All right. Then I guess that's all that's left is to thank all of our sponsors of which we have our cat for this episode and remind everybody that the music that you hear on this episode is by system kid subscribe to Arcaspeak on Apple podcasts or listen directly from our site at Arcaspeakpodcast.com where you can stream or download every episode and find links to 
all the things we mentioned. In fact, several really interesting ones this time. So make sure you check your email, sign up for that newsletter that we send out when the episode goes live. And definitely uh, check out all of our social media on either Twitter or Facebook. And I will have links in there to our Instagram account so you can see some of the things that we posted over our trips this past weekend. And, or you can email us, let us know. Links to all of this can be found at arcaspeakpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and stay subscribed. We'll catch you next time. Get inspired. See ya. What he said. Yeah.